got sugar when I had been with my wife-to-be for about, I want to say about two years, a year or two years. In my head, I knew I was going to be with Lindsay for the rest of my life. And she'd always wanted a cat. It was my first home and I was notoriously fussy. I wanted, you know, back then I wanted to try and keep everything pristine. Everything was kept clean within an inch of its life. So I was initially anti-cat because cats, they trash stuff, right? But I'd wrap my head around the fact that actually longer term and even really immediate term, this was Lindsay's house too. And if she wanted to have cats, then, you know, this would, it felt wrong to deny someone that. I'd always had pets growing up. We went to a cat show, uh, which sounds bonkers, and we found a breed we liked and it climbed all over my clothes and I hated the instant because it trashed my nice duds, but, but Lindsay loved it. So we went down to Somerset and we said we were going to have one cat from each of two litters. And come the actual time we went to pick them up, the cats in the blue litter, they looked really sickly, like really ill. And the cats in the peach litter, they all looked pretty well. And I went and spoke to Lindsay and I said, look, I don't want to sound cruel, but don't line yourself up for a life of medical bills. Let's get two brothers. And we got the two cats in the same litter. So it's kind of fortuitous, really, because if the blue litter had been weller, in appearance at least, we wouldn't have necessarily had one of the two cats. So I named one, Lindsay named the other. Smith was just because I wanted a human-sounding name for one of them for my one. And we both agreed that kind of alliteration was a thing. Lindsay wanted the name of one sugar, so that was simple as that, really. And they instantly trashed my leather sofa. Instantly, like fucking instantly, tore it to absolute shreds. They did everything that was said on the tin. They climbed up your clothes. They trashed at least three of my high-end work suits back when I used to give a shit about my work apparel. Yeah, they were an absolute sodding nightmare, but but we loved them, you know. Attention British Airways guests traveling on flight 170. If you have not yet seen a British Airways representative at the airport, please make your way to gate C-59 for passport verification. I am now going down the gastro route, having a gastric scoping and endoscopy. Mm. 
and um, checking out why one of my liver enzyme markers is wonky. They call it a fibrous scan, but it's a glorified ultrasound that can differentiate between scar tissue and cirrhosis and fat and God knows what. And weirdly, my gastritis has settled down now, but I think that's partly just because I know I'm on a path for getting it dealt with, if that makes sense. My anxiety has kind of lowered a bit and anxiety can trigger well obviously triggers acid reflux anyway and you know your stomach acid and all that shit like people get stomach ulcers from stress Mm -hmm. so I'm not saying I have a stomach ulcer what I'm saying is there's a the parasympathetic nervous system works like that the endoscopy thing it comes with a little bit of risk because of the bleeding risk and all that shit but I'm not an 80 year old granny with skin made out of greaseproof paper it's plausible that I can have an endoscope without being the one case that bleeds out on the table (laughs) But the initial consultation with the gastro doctor was good because he said, here's the thing you're not thinking about, Craig. All these drugs we've given you as stomach acid suppressors. You know, I'm going, yeah. Yeah, the things that's supposed to stop you getting ulcers. Yeah. They very often give you absolutely horrendous indigestion, especially if you're taking them when you don't need them. I'm like, oh. And it's like, fucking great. So it's like, let's put a scope in you and let's see if you've got ulcers and if you actually need them. I've lost a shit ton of weight though. Absolute shit ton of weight. Clothes are virtually falling off me. And um, I tell you what, why didn't I sort myself out sooner? It's so awful. You just had to get sick, didn't you? That's the motivator. Maybe this is it. Maybe you need some kind of placebo effect where at some point in your life, and you don't know when, the doctor's just going to say, you know, you better shape up. In a week's time, you will die. And and you don't know you don't know it's going to happen. Like the government just decides to do this secretly, and the doctors start contacting people, just saying you're going to die. And then that would motivate people to actually make good changes in their lives. I hope to fucking God, if my scan goes all right and my endoscopy goes all right, otherwise this is going to be the most grim, foreshadowed <laughs> episode ever. <laughs> God. And I'm going to make some of the personal calls myself, pretending to be a doctor, just for the thrill of. Calling people up and just saying, by the way, you know, there's, you know, that last trip to the doctors you did. Yeah, yeah, I know it was two years ago, but we've just realised from the test then that you're going to die next week. Lovely. I-, I would love to make those calls. Is this like because you can't abuse the kids, so you're going to abuse some other unrelated adults? Well, it's because I am so emotionless myself. I need to feed off the high emotions of strangers. You know, in those films of the aliens, I don't know. They come down and they feed off your emotions. That's me. Welcome to a Train Rush, the Voight Camp test of train game podcasts. Your response to the show determined if you're a cold-hearted replicant or as real as any boy could ever be. <laughs> Brought to you today by Craig, Deckard Taylor and Joe Kowalski-Reese. I don't know whether any of our audience would have picked up from our background noise yet, but for the first time in ages, we are recording this live. It's the live episode of The Train Rush, live from... Pittsburgh Airport. We've just returning from the Winsome Cheesome Con, and we decided not to record any of the convention, because that would be boring, but record live from the airport, which is not at all boring it's replete with excitement replete (laughs) with excitement people love watching us record they don't think we're weird at all i haven't had any strange looks Mm -hmm. i haven't had to worry about a man with a jacket leaning into me not at all (laughs) do you think it is right 
and worthy to compare us to the Beatles with this recording. I was going to say, surely we could just just skip the middleman. Mm. Let's compare ourselves to Jesus. Yep. He had a big studio album, Old Jesus, and then he he returned with something a bit back to basics. My beard's not as good as his, which is quite staggering considering I have the benefit of modern products, and he was doing all this stuff 2,023 years ago, probably washing his hair with, like, prehistoric soap. Well, not prehistoric soap. Mm, prostitutes' hair, I think. Mildly post-Jesus soap. Mm. I believe that's how you indicate that period of time. Maybe that's where the name Head and Shoulders comes from. Because you know Jesus was famous for washing his feet in, with prostitutes' hair. Head, the, the head and shoulders of the prostitutes. That's, that's where the brand, brand name came from. Or maybe that would be toes and ankles. Blasphemy 101, brought to you by the train rush. Am I allowed to compare myself to Jesus? I think I am, it's fine. We're in a post-Jesus age. Someone's got to be Jesus, it might as well be me. The Beatles once caused controversy in the United States when John Lennon suggested that they were more popular than Jesus. Is the train rush more popular than head and shoulders shampoo? I don't even know how to reply to that. I thought head and shoulders was borderline dead as a brand. Oh, maybe we are like Head and Shoulders. Mm. Head and Shoulders died as a brand because it's kind of like anti-sexy marketing. Use this if you've got dandruff. Ugh, you dirty, filthy person with flaky skin. You need special shampoo that marks you out as unclean. And negative associations. The train rush. Always negative. Uh-huh. If you listen to us, you're definitely unclean. Mm-hmm. It's the sort of thing that you would like put in a secret folder on your podcast player so nobody could see it. <laughs> Do we have 1.3 billion listeners across 140 countries? No, Joe, we do not. Okay. So we're not more popular than Head and Shoulders then? No. So, okay. Um, so, well, what were you going to say? Because you started with an um, which usually is followed by something. Did you have something meaningful to say? Or were you just filling the gap there? The awkward gap between our conversation. No, I, I, I didn't have anything particularly meaningful to say, apart from talking about today's wonderful game, Joe. Today's wonderful game could arguably be meaningful. Probably, Probably not. not. <laughs> <laughs> Today, the train rush are covering Eerie Chance to uh, look out! Oh. 
Benjamin's doing swimming lessons now. It's in the middle of Saturday, so it always feels like we're waiting around. To go, and then you come back, and then the day's virtually gone. I was going to say waiting around to die, but yes. We have lunchtime Mondays. I know what that day's like. I'll tell you what, he absolutely loved swimming before the pandemic. He'd only just turned three, but he absolutely loved it. And then all the pools were shut, and maybe it's an entire year we didn't go swimming. And he came back and he was terrified of the water, absolutely terrified. And maybe that's a maturity thing as well, because now he realises the danger. Lindsay's managed to terrify Robin because she's insisted on taking her down slides a couple of times. And I'm saying, Lindsay, you should really let me do it, because on the first time, she virtually drowned her on exit. She's on her lap. And for some reason, right, Lindsay's lying back on this slide, fully backwards. I'm like, why are you not sitting up? And she's lying fully backwards and Robin, I'm like, shot into the water. And Robin's coming up for her. I'm like, oh, fuck me. And then Lindsay's dragged her back down again and trying to stand up. You're like, <laughs> just as she's trying to inhale. Oh, Lindsay's pulling the straight back down. You're like, Jesus H, Christ. <laughs> Obscene. But now, right now Robin is scared of green slides. We're not going to do a green slide, are we, Daddy? Oh, for fuck's sake. Does Lindsay still listen to the podcast? Not since she's gone avant God, Joe. She's not interested <laughs> anymore. I suppose we better talk about a game then. Eerie Railroad. It plays in about 30 minutes, although I've never played it in 30 minutes. And we'll come back to that in a second. That came out in the 2013 Essen set, along with Northern Pacific and the Age of Steam map, Belgium, and the big game of that set was Continental Divide. I haven't played that. Have you played that? I bought it from Steve's Collectibles for about a fiver. And because I only had a fiver committed to it, Joe, it's very far down my list of things to play. That's how I play my games, Joe. I go from most money spent to least money spent. Are you not motivated by our podcast at all? Joe, 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 Joe. I have to play my Winsomes with my other friends who don't live near here, who would only let me pick Winsomes once every four weeks, and I couldn't drive a podcast off of that. (laughs) For the record, you guys, including my wife, you make me sad. And if I don't survive the flight, I want you guys to know I'm miserable in my gaming life because of you three people. Sarah Alsop, (laughs) Tom Paul, and Lindsay Taylor. You know what, if you've got some travel insurance, I bet Lindsay now, listening to the raw tape after we've both <laughs> exploded <laughs> in the air crash, is probably like living it up on the life insurance. Big payout. Well, and selling my winsomes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. For like five, $5 a piece. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, dear. Oh, man. That was a course a reference to the time Craig bought his entire Winsome Games collection from the wife of a collector who was being entered into a hospice. Go on. Do you think Erie Railroad, you feel like it could have just been design filler? John's looking at the games and you know he casted another one just to boost up that year. That seems like something we could actually answer with an email when and if we land. In my very brief conversation with John Borer about it, you heard me right, folks. He didn't express it being one of his masterworks, but then he was very busy telling the story about the cat. 
he passed by as I was playing it. Yeah, he said, oh, that's not my best work. That's what he said to me. He was quite dismissive of the title, wasn't he? Mm Mm-hmm. The reason I was wondering about this, I was thinking about Eerie Railroad and making comparisons to other card games from small publishers and those that have gained enough traction to get wider releases, like Cat in the Box. And, you know, not not games which are similar in gameplay necessarily, but card games, similar in game length and with similar origins. Hmm. And I think there's an interesting case study and comparison to be made between the small publishing houses in Japan and Winsome Games. Games which debuted at game fairs, handmade often, or hand-assembled, with only a hundred or so copies ever printed. And I was talking to Hero at the, the Winsome Con. I need a hero! No. Hero Oyakawa of Neon Comic Games. And she was saying that two big Tokyo game fairs, how that almost creates like a, a, a fevered design approach. There's this big deadline and the designers have to work hard and fast to get games ready every six months to meet the next fair. And I was thinking about this kind of pressure cooker approach to design. And I think it really does drive innovation. And I was imagining that's a similar motivational force behind John Bora at Winsome Games to keep pumping out games, to try and be innovative, pushing genres and seeing what new things they can do with old ideas. And I think there's a lot of merit to be said for that. It's admirable. However, on the other hand, you have the potential to get lots of one-note ideas, Mm. showcases of concepts and just gimmicks you know a spark of inspiration that can strike some interest but you know might not have much shelf life beyond the gap between this fair and the next and you know their small print runs reflect those little sparks and one example is cat in the box which i think is very shallow beneath the surprise of its innovative twist i i don't know if you found that when you played cat in the box what what were your feelings Broadly speaking, my feelings were showy gimmick. What you're fighting for is too arbitrary in terms of trying to create those links, especially when coupled with the unpredictable end round clock and the amount of time you have to do it is dependent on how greedy people get in terms of suit consumption. But I'm not going to argue that it's not creative or clever. It's a gimmick that thematically works well but creates a game with too low a level of control Mm -hmm. as an individual agent versus the genre itself trick-taking not for me in any way shape or form beyond a curio to stretch people's minds for a play the perspective of the designer here john's reflection on eerie railroad Obviously, he's comparing it to all the other masterpieces in his collection. It'd be interesting to you know, have this discussion and see where it sits with us. Mm. Whether it is just a throwaway design or whether we think there's actually more to it, maybe it's underappreciated. Maybe we can come up with a firm conclusion about that towards the end. Like an essay? Yes, yeah. Ugh. Ugh, disgusting. Is Eerie Railroad a throwaway piece of crap? Or is it good? <laughs> That's the essay question. The top in bold. Gotta like. And it can only go one way or the other. 
I'm going to just expound on that 30 minutes bit, Joe. I've never played it in 30 minutes, but I suspect that is absolutely achievable if you haven't got somebody at the table who's new with their mind kind of blown going, is that it? Is that it? How do I play this? Now, bear in mind, the rules are about one side of A4 paper long, including the disclaimers. But Erie Railroad is in like size 36 font, taking like an eighth of a page. There's a big diagram of how you could potentially splay your shares. Sure. So, useful. Useful stuff (laughs) that everybody will doubtless ignore. And... I don't understand how people do get their mind blown by such a small amount of rules, but the implications of them, perhaps it's that whole thing of it's nothing like anything they've played before, so they need to see the cogs were to understand the motion of the system. How do I interact with the other players? How do I wrestle for ascendancy? How can I improve my lot whilst degenerating their position? Maybe those things take an extra 10 minutes to work out on your first play, but I'm yet to play it in half an hour. And in some tables where they're deconstructing it as they play and having a live podcast session as they play, Joe, with somebody sitting there being teacher, I've seen that take an hour. (laughs) So I blame our groups mostly. This does seem broadly achievable in 30 minutes with a group that wants to hit it with reps. I have played it a few times in that 30-minute bracket, if you don't include restarts. But that's what makes it an interesting game to look at, because it can be played very off the cuff. Or the last time I played, which was at the convention, it played longer because it had a lot of table talk around the implications of every decision. You were playing it as a co-op, Joe. How do we bash the next seat? How do we bash the next seat? (laughs) How do we collectively bash the next seat? It was quite a strange game to watch. It can play for as long as you like, or as short as you like, okay? You can sit there for about six hours if you really want to play it in six hours, but the box is 30 minutes. It's the recommended playtime. I'm sort of confused because I'm thinking that this is a fun game that I enjoy. It's lively, it's light, it provides decent decisions in a short amount of time. But I only tend to get that response with pretty dyed-in-the-wall train gamers. People who are train game adjacent go, meh, it's all right. So maybe I'm not necessarily enjoying it on that level. The brutality of the auctions where you have to hold something back, otherwise you can effectively be thrown off this bucking horse into the cactus along the Erie Railroad line. I have no idea if it went through a desert, but it did now. Mm -hmm. It's evil, absolutely evil. Sitting there with no money, waiting for the largesse of another player to fire dividends somewhere in your portfolio. Largesse that will never, ever, ever come. The Erie Railroad suffered from multiple bankruptcies. The original cost of the building basically bankrupted the railroad. The standardisation from wide to standard gauge bankrupted the railroad. We had the Great Depression, which bankrupted the railroad. I sense a theme here. Is this a quality of the game? If you zero out in an auction, you have to wait for the dividends to be able to engage with auctions. And the only way to trigger dividends so they do get money so that you can engage with an auction is to win an auction and you can't win an auction if you have no money and like you said you are just waiting for another player to throw you a bone or getting outrageously lucky with the position of the locomotive and somebody else's largesse for triggering shares but i mean even then that's a context piece where i would go "Mm, okay they're zeroed out and if i do a dividend this round they get back in the game but do they that is 
an argument. It depends on what stage of the game someone zeroes out. If they've got a large portfolio in front of them, then dividends can give them enough money to get back into an auction. Let's say if it happens really early, they blew all their money on one share, it might not be likely that they can even get back into the game and they're effectively dead from the first turn. This can be ironed out from play two ways, I think. First off, in a demonstration, so you let the game free and you allow someone to make such a stupid mistake to show that that is a potential possibility with this game. And then you re-rack, or like I did in my last game, I decided instead to offer my cautionary tale based on my past experience. I think I would rather go with the vibe of saying, be prepared for us to re-rack and go again, let's play. And if they don't make the mistake, great. And if they do make the mistake, call them stupid. Stupid. You just re-rack. I think it can sometimes leave a funny taste in the audience's mouth when you infantilise them with do play like this, don't play like that. You've inadvertently made them your meat puppet, Joe, to create a perfect launch for your uh, game of Eerie Railroad. <laughs> I wanted to play a good game. I want to play a good game. <laughs> you bid three. You bid four, Ashley. It wasn't like that. Joe was much angrier in his delivery than that. I guess it's the desire of the teacher to want the game to make a good first impression. It's kind of loosely associated with something my old boss said to me years ago. It was in offering feedback. Mm. Now, when someone does something foolish, you've got a couple of choices, but one of the things you can do is you can say, God, Joe, you're stupid. Mm. I, get, I get a lot of that at home. Yeah. Or you could frame it as, oh, Joe, you behaved stupidly. That was a stupid thing to do. One of those things gives you a path to improvement. You know, it's not you. If I say you're stupid and you swallow that whole, oh, I'm stupid and it has this ripple effect on the rest of your life and you don't believe it can be changed, you know. Mm. I am intrinsically stupid. Oh, Joe, you did a stupid thing. It's a transient event. You can learn from it. You can improve yourself. Mm. That does sound good. I think there's something in, in that. Not sure what. It's certainly not a podcast, in it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was impressed by that disassociation of action and character. I think that's probably a quality I really admired when I went to this convention. Because I don't think there was anyone in the room who wasn't prepared to look stupid. Because they knew exactly what they were getting into. Except when I played Wooden Shoes and Iron Monsters. Because... I, I think I must have definitely been intrinsically stupid. Absolutely dead for four hours straight. Here's why I don't think it matters. It's 30 minutes, and it's a game replete with a degree of randomness baked in, so chucking away a game instance does not feel like that big of a deal. Just because there's train game visual collateral attached to this doesn't really mean that you should engage with it in, on a different basis to something with puffy marshmallows and anthropomorphized donuts on it. You can treat it with a degree of casualness on a per-instance basis. I think elements of the design are actually worthy of more respect than that and more engagement than that. I really enjoyed playing this at Winsome Chewsome Com because it was actually really nice just to sit back and listen to the other players talk about their decisions and how it would impact the game state, how their decisions in this round would give too much leverage or advantage to the next player. It was this deep discussion about the impacts of people's decisions. It was great playing it with a group 
that had the context of having played lots of other Winsomes. So they could see the primitives that came into this thing. Shareholding, Winsome-style auctions, reading of other players' portfolios, the concept of dividends and dividend timing. They had some familiarity with these concepts at a high level. They're also familiar with the concept of really elegant games that have a decent depth of decisions on two, three sides of paper. But they still had that mind-blown kind of response of, is that it when you covered the rules? But they had this positive journey of discovery of understanding where the edges were found. In that conversation, it revealed the rich decision space that was in that game. But all the players around the table said, yeah, we would play it much looser in the future. Not everybody plays games for the same reasons we do, Joe. Or certainly they don't play for the same reasons we do every time. That would probably be our default mode because we're boring. Playing just for fun is a rarity, I guess. Although that was how I spent my convention, Joe. I didn't force student workshops on my audience of Erie Railroad. I mean, Ashley just kept saying she had to leave. Well, Ashley is all about the drama. Nothing but drama. Yeah. And mulching. (laughs) And especially if there's drama about the mulching. HMMA. High mulch and maintenance, Ashley, as she's known. (laughs) By all her close friends. She's stolen her husband's car. They call it the mulcher, because that's the best car for delivering mulch. And so her husband, her poor husband, could not mulch the whole weekend. They call it the mulchmobile. And every time Ashley's husband needs to get mulch, he puts the mulch signal out. <laughs> Casts the shape of mulch into the sky. Quite hard to differentiate in the cloudscape, but what can you do? <laughs> You've got to stick with the theme. My group's response to it was, I don't know, it was more alive with childlike joy. And because no one was talking through every decision, it moved at a reasonable clip. I think people had the appropriate response to it. If you do the living deconstruction thing, unless you've got the benefit of delivering a podcast off the back, this isn't an hour's worth of fun. You can murder this. And I think it's a shame to murder it with a group on their first play. Therefore, I'm the nicer person and you're the replicant. Learn some empathy for your gameplay and audience, Joe. Wow. Doesn't everyone want to contribute to a podcast 100% of their time? It's the only reason I went to that. Surely that's the reason they paid to go to the convention, was to provide you with human chattel for your podcast. They paid so they could play with me. You you didn't see the posters that I put up all around Pittsburgh, which is a picture of me in my trench coat, and the possibility I'm not wearing any trousers. Relax. And rest. Spending your dying days listening to the train rush. I like the idea of recording in front of a live audience where the audience isn't really listening, <laughs> but that's kind of what we're used to already, I suppose. It's no stranger than recording the desk in Belgium with all the train games going around you, people wondering why aren't they just playing train games? Surely that would be more fun. We've got a good excuse this time. Unless we want to corral the audience, our current audience, into playing a train game, and I've got some Winsome maps without any of the components. So the the recent Winsome releases, Ride the Rails releases, and the Railway series, which are just maps. Or I have got in my suitcase right now, Riding Through England. Which will soon be riding through England on a National Express. Exactly. But I don't know if we've got the audience here for that. I've got Dinosaur Gage in my bag, which could be a bit more lively, a bit more replete with colour to draw in the normcore audience. And dinosaurs. Mm. 
It's worked out for the latest Michael Bay Transformers movie, so maybe it'll work out for train games. I've also got this. I need to. But I didn't book extra baggage allowance, Joe. That's going to have to go in your bag at some point. Well, the person who handed Dude, it to me. We just spent the last week at a convention. So, the person. I know everybody you've seen. Which person? You know when you got lost looking for the restroom at the mattress factory? Someone came up to me and said, you need to take this box back to England. Are you sure this isn't like some sort of performance art piece? Like they were all quite young and strange in a mattress factory. All budding artists or comedians. Are you sure this isn't a send-up? I don't know. It seemed pretty serious. We did look at the sign when we went through baggage, where I put my suitcase in and they said, have you packed all your own bags and you're now carrying something like are we going to be the next 11-9 I'm not comfortable with this mate I'm sitting in an airport basically with a borderline shoe bomber I mean, I'm not a shoe bomber though this is okay, oh, sorry. Some fear Bo- oh sorry semantic difference you're a box bomber I'm sure that'll make a big difference to my blooming bloody limbs flying over the North Atlantic okay hang on uh, just just be careful. Can you hear that? Yes, said Fox. It always is when we are together. That evening, the two friends watched the stars come out one by one. Wolf put his big grey paw on Fox's shoulder and said quietly, Tomorrow, I will be starlight. I had to take my child to A&E because they had a popping, clunking shoulder. I could hear the noise from across the room and she was making statements as, I think that noise is coming from my heart. I know, she's just mad. They see things on the TV like heartbeat and stuff, you know, heartbeats on a cartoon or whatever, and it's making this clunking noise. You're like, that must be my heart. As opposed to the ITV cop drama heartbeat. Of course, you take them in hand. There's no popping, there's no clunking there. Absolutely bastard fine. Usly nuts. Children are the definition of unreliable narrators, so whether she was in pain or not, I'll never know. But I guess the interesting thing there is that... I definitely heard the popping and clunking. And why is it not there now? Boxing, understand. For now, it's just good to be together. And you really now. believe that you can bring life to the dead? I remember when cat breading was a thing. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Probably, I wouldn't do it now, it's slightly cruel, but it boiled down to getting a slice of bread, cutting a hole out in the middle of it, and putting it on your cat like a hat. Or uh, like one of those things at the fun fair where your kid sticks their face through a hole that looks like a shark. The only problem was our cats liked it because it meant they got to eat more bread. We knew we were in for a degree of 
strife with them when we went on our first holiday. We put them in the cattery as healthy, normal weight cats, and we came back and they were both morbidly obese after a few weeks of being in the cattery because the cattery, unbeknownst to us, did open feeding. So uh, we came back and they were just like these giant round lumps because they just kept topping up their food and then the cats would eat all the food and then they'd top up their food and round and round you go and before you know it yeah you're left with a cat that can barely bloody move uh i remember the other time the other weird incident was when he these are all negative incidents but sometimes they're the things that you remember they broke into a treat we had by the front door now what we did was we gave them cat cod liver oil tablets when we were leaving the house just one each you know and they can have one a day it's fine problem was one of us either Lindsay or myself had left the lid slightly too loose so it got knocked over and suddenly there's 150 of these tablets down two cats in one day so I remember taking them both to the vets and having their stomachs pumped and god knows what and being told there's probably no consequences but maybe there is and oh god we've got to contact the Royal Veterinary College to work out what the toxicology on this stuff is and Jesus Christ you know it was just cost me an absolute bloody fortune all for the want of an unscrewed cap on a bloody supplement food live and learn so yeah but food obsessed incredibly social loved people just couldn't get enough of being on you yeah he was he was drinking a lot and urinating a lot and not always making a litter box and his weight wasn't stable and looking back you know these things we didn't see the signs but when we did we took him to the vets blood sugar test diabetes and you go well that's a death sentence isn't it and you're told not necessarily it's a lot of work but you can theoretically you can stabilize them and if you're lucky you can actually walk them back from diabetes you can it's, it's you can regress them out of it <sighs> countless numbers just all lined up on the shelves. Here lies that memory you had of playing that game once, or here's that memory of the time you imagined you would play this game. And it and it makes me feel stupid. Like, I should just sweep them all up into a bin bag and throw them in a river. Someone said this to me as well. Which someone? I have one, two friends. They said to me that they found that COVID completely reset their relationship with the hobby. Playing, buying, keeping. It was just, it just didn't make sense anymore. Why would board gaming in particular be sacrosanct and not subject to the what's my time worth triage that COVID created? Hmm. suitably depressed yet in terms of covid oh, i was such a good summer the first that lockdown i had such a great time don't let all the dead people get in your way Joe. it was an unusually long and dry summer and i spent a lot of my time cycling around the empty streets or playing in the woods or streams with benjamin one day we walked to the top of Salisbury Hill and looked down on the city and Benjamin said he'd never been so high up in all his life. It was endless days of dandelion wine and never felt so at peace. Fuck me. 
I thought you were a psychopath on the previous episodes. I think it was Trans Siberian Railroad where we were talking about how people were having a terrible time and you were going, Yeah, but I was having fun, the pricks. <laughs> Do you know that summer when everybody died? Yeah, yeah. I was like, Fuck off, you weeks off. Fucking great. <laughs> it was good. Oh, oh, man. Oh, dear. But it did make me appreciate how much I do want to spend time with my family. And also, the board game experiences have got to be really good to live up to some of the other experiences that I could be having instead. You were quite surprised that I didn't bring any shampoo uh, on this little trip. Well, I was hoping to bum your shampoo off you when British Airways lost all my shampoo and every fucking thing else (laughs) on the way here. You know, I didn't want to have to buy Target shampoo. Mm. Well, you don't have to buy shampoo. You could just not wash your hair with shampoo. Do you know what? I've been doing that since the pandemic. There was a big craze at the time. I think, well, it started beforehand. It's called the the no-poo movement, where people were just not using shampoo to wash their hair, and this became pretty big because people didn't need to leave their homes and decided just to live disgusting lives, like holed up in their flats, you know, not washing their hair, not washing their bodies, just being generally filthy, grown beards. That was, that was the thing people did in the pandemic. Anyway, I stopped washing my hair, and it was fine. I just wash my hair with water now. And I haven't been down to the local brothel in at least two weeks. What the fuck has happened to this podcast? <laughs> this is how normal conversations work, I've ascertained, right? You tell a joke at the beginning yeah. about Jesus and his fondness for prostitutes. And then when the other person least expects it, you do a callback to that original joke. That's, that's how normal conversations work, Craig. I've noticed. This is like Daleks are invading. <laughs> Those human socialisation classes are really working out for you, Joe. <laughs> so when I was at university, mm-hmm. I was cheap, which is like not much of a statement really because everybody at university is cheap because you want to save as much money for booze as possible. I used to use Tesco Value body wash as shampoo and, and body wash. It was fine. It was fine, Joe. My hair didn't suffer for it. Albeit, I didn't have much hair because I went bald when I was like 19. Hold up a second. Hold up, maybe this story doesn't say what I think it says. Do you think we should ever let the audience know how this game even plays? Or just leave them in a transit lounge limbo? Yeah, we'll we'll do the rules. You, dear listener, who may be a new person to train games, who wants the context of the rules, like a filthy pleb, may have some rules. Well, to be honest, there are plenty of filthy plebs in our audience today, so let's do it on their behalf. Eerie Railroad. It's a share auction game where players will be trying to win auctions to collect shares in front of them or instead of collecting the share into their portfolio they'll be activating it to pay dividends and everybody gets paid we also have a secret share every player gets a single hidden herald signed at setup everybody has a different one depending on the number of players some might not even be in the game and if you so wish you could choose to reveal your super herald and add it to the collective value the game plays until all bar two of the cards in the deck have been auctioned off and then it's over, we count up cash, whoever's the richest is the winner, just like real life, woo, or something. 
It was designed by Benny Seaman, who's John Borrow's ex-girlfriend's pet cat, and this game features a unique type of share. It's a quantum share, or Schrodinger's share. It will have two heralds on it. Whoever wins Schrodinger's share decides which railroad herald it will be activated for. The share is not truly visible until you win the auction. It's not observed until you win the auction. Yes, Yes. it's not observed until you win the auction and tell everyone else what it was. And they all collectively believe you. I quite like that idea of that being almost a metaphor for the stock market. It is this imaginary concept. And those with the strongest imagination make that market or those ideas a reality. Oh, it could just be a mechanism, Joe. It could be, or it could be an artistic expression. Now, here's a fun bit. The play goes round the table in a clockwise order, and on your turn, you are the first bidder for the auction. There's a little first bidder marker, it's called the locomotive. If you are the holder of the locomotive, doesn't matter whether you won the auction or not, you may choose to sell your shares. But you can only sell the shares of the observed quantum railroad stock and only if the winner of the auction uses the stock for dividends so if the erie railroad and new york central quantum share is won in an auction and the winner chooses to activate erie railroad for dividends only erie shares can be sold by the player with a locomotive so the winner of the auction has to consider their leverage in this situation and the balance in power so what happens when you sell your shares well the shares of that herald they pay for you and you alone again and then you stick your shares into the bin they won't be considered for share value so future dividends for the other players holding those now rubbish shares will be worth less and just to make it clear to our live audience shares are not diluting in this game. Dividends are simply calculated by the number of shares in players' hands multiplied by the number that they hold, which means other players winning an auction is not necessarily a bad thing, as the value of a company's share and the shares that you own could rise exponentially. So there's an internal tension here, and the question hangs over each auction. Which player will win the share, and which company will that share belong to at the end of the auction? And this is probably why selling shares work well in this game. The value goes up when shares are popular, and after sales, there's a drop in value. You can't sell your hidden super share because, I don't know, reasons, whatever. Hmm. You're lumped with it forever. You're wed to it. It's like a family heirloom share issued by the family stock market. I'd probably suggest that if anyone were to design a Cubrow game with sales of shares, this is the framework or model the designer could use. And that is the entire bloody game. Utterly bonkers. That, I mean, I know that took me a while to say because I was just hamming it up a bit. I think some players could play it faster than, <laughs> than our description of the game. Not would be like that. <laughs> the Schrodinger's shares. Two heralds on each share, and there are three cards of each combination. For example, New York Central will be combined with BNO three times. And so the result of that, let's ignore for a moment that two never get auctioned off, the result 
of that deck means that they can be anything from zero to 12 shares of that company. And that is entirely decided by the players as they auction off and choose which side is observed in this grand experiment of quantum theory that we're conducting. The collective decisions of the players defining the volume of shares and also the journey of volume. By that I mean, if players exercise sell opportunities, it may not always be an upwards climb. It may not actually hit a peak of 12 simultaneous shares. It may only hit a peak of five simultaneous shares for B&O, but there's been 12 throughout the course of the game. It means the value of the companies will not be the same from game to game. So the other points of texture, Joe, the last two shares, you mentioned that in passing, it's a very minor thing, but it essentially means that four company triggers will not be available. So the last order's bell should vary significantly from game to game and adds a little bit of push your luck type risk element to the game instance. Do I think the opportunity for me to trigger my portfolio is even going to come up? Do I do it now? Do I do it later? As the bell gets nearer and nearer, do I grab the value I can grab now or do I fight for value that may never even be? But the end game trigger is a fixed amount of cards from the end. It doesn't feel like a wild swing of luck in somebody's favour or not. Everybody has the opportunity to see how close the end you're getting. How close the end is is a known quantity. It also ensures the game doesn't grind down to... Just brute force calculations. Oh yeah, I know this is coming up, so I will hold money, blah, for the auction that really, really matters. If you don't know that that auction is guaranteed to happen, then you have to play a bit looser. When do you think you should whip out your hidden heirloom, as we, we like to call it? Well, how amorous is she feeling? Yes, I think it's hidden information, which allows you to disguise your intentions, maybe for the first half of the game. You don't know how strongly someone wants to win in an auction or not. It's also to provide player bias, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's to provide differential values for a single quantum thing in the middle and differential motivations for which way to activate it to put people on opposite ends of a rope in a tug-of-war sense because that's more interesting than we're both pulling the same direction not only did i win the tug-of-war i've pulled the game state away from your future interests that you're married to from the card i think the brilliance of the card is in that initial bias it provides Mm -hmm. I don't think it's in the decisions it provides in the game because essentially you play it when when you require the extra dividends yeah yeah, you play it as soon as necessary because the leverage is more powerful than the card right once you can get that extra bit of money up on other players then you've got more opportunity to bully or snipe value shares because you zero out later than other players however you convert that and it gets to a point anyway where it just becomes obvious once other people start revealing their heirlooms it's pretty obvious which heirloom is missing from the table. Mm. So luck and fortune and how it fits into this game. I think there's two sides to this. I think there's the thematic aspects about how luck and fortune are appropriate for the setting. The fluctuations in that erratic stock market, agreed. And also the elements of timing, like selling something when it's at its peak or creating a run on sales. We're going to all sell this thing together or I'm going to sell a big chunk of this thing and everybody who didn't get on that proverbial train suffers immensely. Mm -hmm. I think those aspects suit the theme. The other element of this is how much luck is there really? The same opportunities are available for all players, bar one starting share, that makes some difference, but not so much difference. A player whose starting share never comes up to the second half of the deck with canny play should be able to broadly compete with players who's come up early. I guess there's this luck element of, well, if I buy five of these shares and win the auction, 
and the sixth one never comes out, thereby not allowing me to materialise the dividend value that I've been slowly building up. That's unlucky. Or is it greedy? <laughs> That's another aspect of the push your luck in this. You've got to push your luck for the tail end triggers, which two cards aren't coming up. But also, how long do you want to lock your value down as paper value in a portfolio versus leverageable cash value? Am I better off with a little bit, you know, let's say two shares less because I take two mid-game dividends to actually bleed some money out of the portfolio mid-game. And whether that's the right or the wrong thing to do is partly defined by the context of other players' cash holdings and portfolios. There's decision-making on offer here, and I don't think this is Yahtzee by any stretch of the imagination. It's also about anticipating where that locomotive is going to be next. And I suppose if you go heavy into only one company, then maybe you're reducing the chances that you'll be able to pay that all out. If you have some clumps across a few companies, then maybe when that locomotive comes round to you, it has more chances to match up at least some of your portfolio. Mm, So mm, you are managing your portfolio and the ability to pay out. Versus the value of diversification, if I leech... If I choose to win some shares that other people are holding, I know there's some incentive for them to pay. So I'm partly playing with their cash pool too, because in their interest to win the share, to pay the dividend that I passively benefit from. Maybe if the train is sitting on me at the right time, I get to benefit twice, gaining an edge. The element of luck, in inverted commas there, or the locomotive. I've I've got to get this in, Joe, I'm sorry. The locomotive, Joe. I was just just doing a play on words, Joe. Locomotive. You have 30 cards, and at the beginning of the game, two are already known. And because there are only five companies, and there are two heralds on each share, the chances of you predicting one of the two companies on the next card drawn at the beginning of the game is just a little under 50%. But by the time you get to the fifth auction, the chances of your predicted company coming out of that deck is exactly 50-50. Yeah, it's a cat in the box. It's not a perfect information game. And frankly, that's okay. (laughs) I think it adds so much more in terms of decision texture than it takes away in terms of reducing how deterministic this game is. The element of the locomotive, not only does it add tension, it also adds an element of decision-making Maybe you need to wait until the locomotive comes around again, and then it's a better opportunity. So that push your luck, and that adds excitement, and it adds decision-making. At no point is anything really stripped away from you. It's all additive. I think it's luck, or, or chance, or probability done well in a short time frame. The locomotive is not just a first player marker, and it matters. And the amount of context and complication... It adds... A ticking clock, a predictable ticking clock to the rounds. Coupled to that, you can see what's up in the current auction, and you can see what will be coming up in the following auction. So, simultaneously, you can think about the current round, the current auction, and who has the locomotive. You can also think ahead to where the locomotive is moving next, and the potential shares on offer for that Mm. next auction, which can fall in two ways. The auctions aren't just for the face value of the shares. Of course, you've got the denial value as well. Do I want to deny Joe getting a dividend? Is it worth me overpaying for the share because I'm rich right now to deny Joe having any money so I maintain my degree of leverage over him in the future auctions? 
but there's also the locomotive allows players to potentially get back into the game if they sell it devalues the other players portfolios bringing their delta of advancement lower towards the basement but it also gives me much needed cash if i have no cash i can't enforce a sensible price basement for shares once you realize how important the selling of your shares is and how it is both a win for you and it's a punch to everybody else's face. It's a double threat. Once you realise how powerful that is, it provides a key piece of context in every decision, in every auction. I quite like the symmetry. I guess it's the symmetry of having potentials for two shares over two rounds and the decision trees which open up from all of those possibilities. The rest of the game is hidden in that deck and it slowly peels itself back. I don't know if that's a, that's a weird phrase, peeling itself back, but I've used it now. It's like a self-peeling orange, Joe. Or an onion. An onion has layers, right? Yeah, sure. It's, it peels itself, famously. Hence why, everybody, <laughs> hence why everybody cries, because it's such a horrific thing to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Luck's part of this game, but it's calculable enough. This isn't a train deck defines the options for the players, and if the option to put someone in an armhole doesn't come up, bad luck. There's probably some wild instances of this, actually, where nothing but B&O shares come out for the start. So, oh, I'll keep buying shares to try and stop them getting the dividends. We all zero out and, oh, no, I ran out of money and they were still able to buy the dividends card for a song anyway. But it runs half an hour. The game has paid you with a funny story. Sometimes it's the negative incidences that are the most memorable. Mm. Do you think in a reprint they should blow up the size of that locomotive, which is probably the size of like one knuckle length of your little finger. It's, it's, like, it's, blow, it's like a blow that up to like a brick-sized component it's made like, entirely of plastic or glass or something, something really solid. Just to, point, just to point out to some of the players who, who might not recognise how important it is in the game. It's the size of a small caterpillar, Joe. Yes, okay, that's a good comparison because obviously who knows how big my hand is. You're right, the caterpillar was a better comparison there. Where really it should be the size of a pet cat. Or a Coke can, I was going to say. A cat's bigger. And screw the Queen Games reputation and their box sizes. I mean, this would be a perfect fit for those Queen boxes, wouldn't it? Eerie Railroad, tiny deck of cards, but enough space to keep live or dead cat. You don't know until you open the box. Well, you know, we talked about 3D printing some, right? I was just wondering, do you want me on its face? Are you up your own arse enough for me to, like, take a photo of you and put, like, a Thomas the Tank Engine type Joe face on the front? So the first time you pull it out at your local train group, it'll be printed in gold as well, right? Just to really make it something. You go, here you go, we're using this for the active player marker, and it's your grinning visage. Yeah, yeah. Spectacles and all, (laughs) staring at them. Are you you up your own arse enough? For that i'm up my own arse enough for that i like me and they can like me too by way of my plastic train <laughs> well the whole premise of the thomas the tank engine story so the whole moral is is either are you a useful engine or a conceited engine and Indeed. i think this marries them both together it is an incredibly useful accessory for the the gameplay and incredibly conceited so it's, it's, it's exactly what the fat controller loves from his minions he gets the pleasure in an organized railway but also the pleasure in being able to degrade and humiliate these engines which have no real free will i suspect however joe it may lead to some conclusion when they brick your effigy up behind the fireplace <laughs> <laughs> to make them feel better about the evening's proceedings, I really do. 
I think I would be a suitable martyr. I love the extreme measures the Fat Controller would go to as well, just to teach Henry a valid life lesson. About vanity and not being able to accept the rain. About stupidity. So how does that translate to kids? Like, if you if you don't like going out in the rain, your parents will brick you into the, into the well, cupboard under the stairs? I mean, that's, I mean, that's what we do. Yeah. listening to the train rush take a deep breath knowing it'll be one breath closer to your last there's one more thing I wanted to say you're doing your Columbo are you? Joe was infamous at the convention for forever re-asking where the auction was and who had just bid what. It was like playing with a live-action version of Columbo and the irritation of his foils at the table was akin to the villains in Columbo. Well done, Joe. <laughs> Maybe you can attend Columbo Con 2024 and repeat your live cosplay experience. And despite the heat of Pittsburgh, I was wearing one of those big, that brown Max every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> reveal my heirloom yeah. when it was appropriate yeah. <laughs> when I know I could strike dividends <laughs> we've talked quite a bit about the game after every game one of the things was the potential for retheming Erie Railroad with the idea that it would be easy to do and you could potentially reach a wider audience with a repackage away from the railway theme. Well, I don't see any reason that those stocks need to be railroad stocks, akin to something like startups, that give the average consumer something less threatening to latch onto in terms of setting, motif, aesthetic. Stocks are a heavy theme anyway, right? Stocks are intimidating. There's an implicit association that there's going to be intense maths. And I think railroad games have a similar, possibly built off the stocks thing, or maybe independently, but that has a similar mystique around it, where there's an assumption that railroad games are intense and mathy and nerdy. And I think there is space for stock games that try to be approachable and make the audience feel that it could be for them. And I don't see anything intrinsic in this game that necessitates the railroad theme. There's no geography to speak of at all. Now, I'm not going to be one to say to John he shouldn't use the companies he loves as the inspiration for a game that he may or may not love, but certainly for a project that he's worked on. And to a certain extent, damn the audience. If they can't meet John where he is creatively, well, it's their loss. But if I was picking this up as a publisher, I would not be married to those railroad heralds. I don't think I would have many complaints about a publisher doing so. But I do wonder if the railway theme, it gives the right signals and builds up the expectation in the audience correctly. I mean, when I say correctly, if... The audience is familiar that many train games are very cutthroat. Then this setting immediately highlights the kind of experience that they're likely to have. But then again, maybe the element of chance in Erie Railroad pulls a rug from underneath the train gamers' expectations too. We've played with people who are experienced at playing train games, who've played cube rails who have 
got upset by the misfortune in this game, the fact that the timing never lined up, almost kind of table-flipping kind of level <laughs> levels of fury. That makes me wary that this could become marketable because you'll get a lot of first impressions and potentially a lot of upsets. People flipping tables because the game is just not fair. If we were to set this in a world of cartoon animals that builds an incorrect or misinforms the audience. Do you have to walk it all the way down to cartoon animals? I agree with you to a certain extent. Let's say you're married to the Railroad Heralds. Hmm. How do Wait, you which, which I'm which I'm not. No, 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 no. Sure, but just take that position. You are married mm. to them, okay? okay? And you've got lots of little babies that look like railroad heralds, <laughs> and they're very strange. Putting them through the school system, the teachers don't know what to do with them. How are you going to present that in a modern fashion? And maybe you don't care, but someone picking up the license who wants to get a decent amount of units moved to make it worth their time probably does. If you want to stretch beyond that core sales demographic of cube riders who know their cube riders and they know what Erie Railroad is because they've played it before on bits of craft paper or they've heard about people playing it before on bits of craft paper. If you want to stretch beyond those two and a half thousand sales or whatever the number is, you've got to do something visually because visuals sell games, I hate to say it. And that's why I think you should change the companies. <laughs> do you think it would be a, a commercial success? Do you think it has that potential? If it got picked up by the right media outlets? And how do you catch their eye? Bear in mind they're not weird sexual miscreants like us who want train heralds on their stuff. Uh, I guess little cartoon animals? Cartoon animals, exactly. Yeah, okay. One of the questions I was asked after one game, why would I ever play this over a Knizia auction game? Ooh, I wasn't there for that. Ooh. How did you disabuse them of their wrong views, Joe? This is the trick. What you do is just say, oh, yeah, 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 like that. Then you wait. Wait, you know, a few months. <laughs> and then... You think of all the answers, record everything you could have said, and then publish it wide out into the world for everyone else to hear. So you state this big proclamation to an audience of, you know, there must be hundreds of people here in our live audience. And then suddenly you're the victor of that argument that happened months ago that everyone's forgotten. Why would you play this over a Knizia auction game? Rani Knizia, you know, there's no denying he is, he's, he's a pretty good designer. He's above average, you know? I wouldn't want to put him off from doing future designs, so I won't rag into him any more than that. <laughs> and John Borer mentioned, you know, when we saw him the other day, he said, you know, modern art, what a great gift to humanity. Mm. He said something like that. What I'd say about this game is that I think it is an incredibly good distillation of... The Winsome games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are qualities that have not been matched, I don't think, by other designers working outside of the Winsome Publishing Company. It's fragile. You've got an intensity of shared incentives. And in those auctions, because of the razor edge that you could end up falling off, there's a weight, there's a granularity in the decisions. Should I spend $4 instead of $3? Now, how is that going to affect my overall position? You've got the sense of managing other players. 
to ensure they don't get their big payouts, and you've got a sense of managing turn order. All of these things, it screams out to me, Winsome Games. It's a particular style of auction game, and I think in 30 minutes, there are not many other small auction games or small stock market games that can really, truly capture that design style. I think I appreciate it more on a almost a showcase-type basis where it demonstrates the depth of decision that can be afforded and a player-defined play space where collaboratively we decide the value arc for various entities in the game with the absolute smallest count of components and rules going. There isn't a strip of fat on it. It's interesting with this, I feel like the ability to create and exploit leverage seems more than any of the connectors I've played today. If you drill yourself down to zero and nobody's feeling generous, you're done. You're a witness to proceedings. Mm -hmm. It's not a family game. Not with the heirlooms on display anyway. This isn't a game that will get massive utility in my local gaming group because I can't convince people of the why not Knizia argument. They don't like the idea of sheer edges. They want to be able to get back on the horse and pretend they're in the race, even if they're not. Who were these stupid people again? Um, Sarah Allsop, Tom Paul and Lindsay Taylor. Oh, let it be known that they are terrified children, afraid of a green slide. But this is a transient thing. You can learn from it. You can, you can improve, improve yourself. If you never wanted to do anything that was dangerous, where should we be if nobody tried to find out what lies beyond? You never wanted to look beyond the clouds and the stars, or to know what causes the trees to bud, and what changes the darkness into light. Maybe the sun will come tomorrow if you wash your hair. What's done is done. If you talk like that, people call you crazy. I'm now drawing these cartoon animals in my mind, okay? I've just added little shit-eating grins on all their faces to taunt the child that turns the table over because they didn't master the game on first play. <laughs> you just got to draw the animals right, Joe, and they'll be, they'll be spot on. Now everyone talks about table flipping. Yeah. That as being, like, an unacceptable behaviour, but something that happens every now and then. Like, it's a common thing. Do you know who the original table flipper was? The original table flipper go on it's Jesus I always said he was a bad sport yeah that's what I thought here's a quote from the Bible and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers that's what you get for your ursary Joe mm. and the seats of them that sold shares in the railroad <laughs> and said unto them it is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of robber barons. That's in the Bible. I remember in an earlier in an earlier section he uh, he took the shares and he uh, split them. He split the shares amongst the many. I was thinking of this kind of putting Erie Railroad in the, the context of the Bible. I was thinking it's clearly a metaphor for the garden tomb there beneath Skull Hill and Golgotha where Jesus himself was once trapped in a state neither alive nor dead. Joe, we've, we, having met John, you know, 
it, it could just be a mechanism. It could be. That, that's allow- that is allowable, I'm sure. And I was thinking, if you're Jesus, maybe I'm Judas. You sure? Ju- one Jude- of the original Twelve Apostles. He was, he was one of the good ones, wasn't he? I mean, I got given 30 gold coins for this review. I'm hoping the flight board's soon. I'm tiring of your company. I want to sleep on the way home. <laughs> Joseph's relentless. The fact that he can't sleep on a plane means that I'm not allowed to sleep on a plane. As I discovered on the flight over. Hey, Craig. Hey, Craig, I'm bored. <laughs> I'm bored, Craig. All your eyelids are doing funny things. Craig, are you having a fit? No, Joe, I'm trying to sleep. Craig, I bring you around food. Are you hungry? No, Joe, it's two in the morning. Like heaven being with you again. Kevin wasn't so far away all the time, you know. I know, but I didn't realize it. Those horrible days and nights. I job we used to go out for drinks after work and i did not like getting as levered as the other guys so when they uh, brought out the round of shots i always used to chuck them over my shoulder <laughs> <laughs> my one <laughs> used to go straight over my shoulder uh, one time it kind of didn't work out because it went straight onto my boss who was standing behind me so that was the oh no the sham the whole sham oh, it's the whole sham you know there's many many Many, many shots in, many, many weeks and months in, they discovered that I'd been chucking these vodkas straight over my shoulder. Is this the same boss who gave you that wise advice about calling people stupid? Did he say you were stupid? I think he effed and blinded. <laughs> I don't remember the specifics of the word cloud that came out of his mouth. If it was a cartoon, it would be like mostly hashtags and skulls and mm. at signs. Did he blame you or did he blame the behaviour? Obviously blamed me. I could have put the vodka in my gullet, couldn't I, Joe? <laughs> you are intrinsically stupid. I'm intrinsically avoiding drinking vodka. <laughs> Did you know that you can actually use vodka instead of shampoo? It apparently has multiple benefits for your hair, like balancing your scalp's pH levels and taming frizz. Lovely. This is quite heavy. Do you even know what's in there, Joe? They said it was a matter of life or death. There's something interesting about it. It makes me want to open it up a bit more. Where are you going to keep it on the plane? Just down by my feet. By my shoes. It'll be okay. It'll be fine down by your feet. Okay. Let's have a look. Okay. Alright. Just a little look. Mm-hmm. 
Where are you? She cried. She reached up to the stars and pulled the shining star blanket down from the sky. Fox did not call for Wolf again. In her heart, she knew that Wolf was never coming back. What happened to Wolf? So we, we did what the vet said, we went with the basic insulin and it was, just wasn't doing anything. He was losing weight hand over fist and when we were doing the blood tests, his insulin levels, they were like a roller coaster. The basic insulin that you, you know, cat specific insulin you give them doesn't have a very high success rate and actually a lot of cats aren't responsive to it. So we went back to my vets, said look, a couple of things. One, we wanted to use the something called a Libra freestyle puck to do continuous glucose monitoring. That was costing me 50 quid every two weeks, but nothing we did for, for six months. He got diagnosed just before my birthday in July last year. <sighs> yeah, and he died just before Christmas nothing we did was nothing we did worked just nothing we did worked we put him on a, we put him on a third type of insulin just before he went he just kept losing weight and I had this I had this moment where you know people were saying oh you know your cat doesn't look well like the cat's at the person who came around and looked after him when we went out you know, they said, oh, he's not looking well, and I couldn't see it. But it was just one day when I could see it. And weirdly, I think I was closer to that cat in the last six months of his life than I was with any animal I've ever had. I had to go out there and do blood tests on him something like three or four times a day, handle him three or four times a day, and, you know, training a cat to tolerate ear pricks for a tiny, inconsequential reward. Wouldn't even get up for food. You're putting food in front of him like some sort of offering to a deity, you know, and he's turning up his nose. A cat that was so food-orientated that he ate himself into obesity over two weeks. And I'd, I'd been up every night, not able to sleep for six months. Just every night I was getting up in the night at two in the morning and at five in the morning to go down and scan his continuous glucose monitor because it's not like you could just look at your phone it was like bluetooth and you had to or nfc sorry so you had to go down and scan this fucking thing me running down there with freaking liquid honey to try and get his blood sugars back up and then you shoot him too far the other way and it's a it's a balancing act right because if you if you if you get their blood sugar too high in a chronic sense then you end up doing nerve damage and you can make them go blind and if it goes too low for any amount of time then they go comatose and they die that way it was a, it was it was a huge amount of pressure for for six months but it escalated as well it was like a boiler it was like a it was like a boiler the, you know the, the worse the situation got the the more self-recrimination there was the harder you work to try and pull that yoke up but there was always some degree of hope until there wasn't you know there's the hope that the next combination of things you did would be the right combination of things you did and there were good weeks as well not every week was awful you couldn't and you couldn't see it as well this willful blindness that you couldn't see that it was just constant degradation there's the hope that just around the bend you can make things right for him and 
he was an affectionate cat. He liked sitting on your lap. And if I, if I surrendered him, he'd be dead. And if there was some, maybe I was wrong. Maybe we'd let it go on for too long. But the whole prospect of telling a four-year-old that you're choosing to do this because you can't, not because you can't, but it's going to sound really awful, but it's how I would have judged myself. But because you can't be bothered. I couldn't, I couldn't face myself. And I don't know. Maybe we let it go on a month too long. Whatever, no. It's the whole, it's the whole life isn't an A-B test. You don't get to see the other, you you don't get to see the path you didn't tread. And I can't imagine looking myself in the mirror if I'd have done it three months earlier. And it cost me, it cost me a few hundred pound in those pucks. But as naff as it sounds, I'd like to imagine, and I know it's anthropomorphisation, it's completely irrational. But I'd like to imagine that if the situation was reversed, he wouldn't give a shit about a few hundred pounds. I think actually, to be fair, it was coupled to one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. It was my daughter's first first reckoning with death. You know, first animal in her life that passed away and. Where's he gone? Why is he gone? What happened? Why can't he come back? Why can't you fix it, Daddy? I'm so thankful for a book she was reading at a time. It was, but it was a book about a wolf and a fox that are friends, and the wolf knows he's gonna die, and he tells the fox that he's gonna go up into the sky and become a star. He'll always be looking down. It was a nice non-religious way of talking about death being part of the cycle of life and allowed to sort of to anchor a mythology around it that wasn't denominational giving robin something that she could latch some degree of understanding to you know rather than yep it's just blackness for him now it's just void I still struggle with death of animals. Like when a human being dies, I don't know, humans get the get the opportunity to sin, don't they? They get the opportunity to live a life and understand what's coming. There's there's elements of injustice and justice there, there's a narrative there. You can tell yourself that someone had a good innings if they reach a certain age. Whereas it just seems like, a, seems like a fucking blind cruelty with kids and animals. It really does. Like, you know, what the fuck did that cat do to deserve to die? That way. What did you like to call sugar? What did you like to call sugar? Mm-hmm. Love the wood, didn't they? What did he like doing with his ball? <laughs> he didn't. He loved it. What else did you like doing? Did you like kissing him? Yes. And stroking him? And cutting him. Mm. He was super duper duper soft. Thank you. 
Where do you think sugar is? Foxes remembering wolf. And the good knife they had to cover. There's somewhere up there. Little star. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Yeah. What would you think if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Yeah, yeah. So the games, me your just, uh, ears tell you what, and I'll sing you a song. You, you take the load for a minute talking about game stuff. I'll sort myself out on mute and... Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah, no worries. One sec. So, you know shampoo? You've got shiny healthy hair and everything is wonderful but after a day or two you need to shampoo it all over again i have fallen into an awful trap of supposed utility value of shorter games and we've discussed this about 18xx you know it's quite easy to trick yourself into thinking they've got greater utility value because you've got that baseline rule set they're easier to table they're easier to learn and you can fool yourself into collecting more than you can ever play with those and i think it's just as easy to get tricked into a similar fallacy with small card games short board game experiences because it only takes 30 minutes to play and i found myself gathering up to 50 short card games but i've do I have the time or the inclination to play 50, 30-minute experiences? And I suppose, overall, I've come to the conclusion that many, many of these short card games are largely disposable. They're borderline fungible, aren't they? You know, you could displace them with something that provides a similar experience, and you're just playing a different one for the sake of playing a different one, rather than replaying the one that offers a very similar experience. And I just found myself trapped in a constant cycle of, rinse and shine a new box and another new box that temporary glow that fades very quickly you know short shallow experiences that don't provide any depth and do not provide anything meaningful and you can argue that any game on the table that encourages interaction above the table is a meaningful experience but i think i've come to the conclusion that what i want alongside that is for all the games that I have, longer and shorter games, to have some substance and not something that's going to be washed down the drain in the next cycle. Something more than a sham, a surprise gimmick and a box with a cartoon cat on its cover. If the audience is out there that will accept a gimmick as a game then surely they'll accept a game where it doesn't reveal itself on the first play. Surely. And then my head's spinning around like I'm Patrick McGowan in The Prisoner and I've just realised I am number one. I'm realising that games are only designed to be played once, or some games are only designed to be played once. 
So maybe a game that needs at least two plays to expose what it is, is born to die. Mm Mm-hmm. I worked out when I was gaming with you yesterday, Joe, in a lesser spotted face-to-face moment, what was getting to me a bit about gaming. I'm already past the recognition of knowing that having too many boxes on my shelf is depressing as hell. It's the equivalent of the armies of grey plastic crack that you'll never paint. Just piling up, looking like a bigger and bigger obligation, staring at you, knowing it'll be there after you're dead. It's just a reminder of your own mortality. Just get rid of the damn stuff. But I realised yesterday, I don't think... I have the ratio of time invested in things correctly. You mean playing train games? It's just, you need to cut that out of your life. Not that. More, I feel like I spend more time revisiting experiences that I'm no longer interested in, but I do it out of a sense of social obligation, or exploring new things that someone else is interested in, but I'm not really that into, than I do either re-exploring absolute bangers that I know have been criminally underserved previously, or exploring new things that I feel do offer a potential that would fill me with excitement. Too many kind of death marches. It's also a me problem, right? I'm choosing to do the wrong things, and I can't blame anybody else. Whatever it is, I'm the architect of that misery. And looking for an external locus is just insane. I can change that. I should change that. Now, I don't want to be selfish. There's balance in all things. That's not how I want my hobby time to be defined. By a sense of obligation. I've got my marriage for that. It's just a case of grabbing myself by the collar, giving myself a good shake. And that's not a euphemism. Sturgeon's law suggests that 90% of everything is crap. And here's, here's a quote. All things, cars, books... Cheeses, hairstyles, people are, to the expert and discerning eye, crud. Except for the acceptable tithe which we each happen to like. So, why have we dug up this minor work designed by John Borer's ex-girlfriend's cat? Just thinking about the presentation of the game, how we've presented it, and how we've discussed it at length and in detail. And we have been generally enthusiastic about it, because we like the game. But have we been overselling it? Maybe. Is the very act of discussing it in so much detail presenting enthusiasm beyond its merit? I've had poor games of this, I've had really good games of this, I've had average games of it. It's not always a stellar game, it doesn't always work. What is though? I mean there's very few games that I've played, very few card games specifically that I can name that are always an amazing experience. Also, what's the function of the podcast? For me it's an ode to design, an appeal to quality. When I'm enthusiastic about this game, I'm enthusiastic about its design attributes, its elegance. Do I think this stands even at the shins of something like Arboretum? Probably not. Have we oversold how good the game is? Maybe, but I think that's a product of our lens. We're looking at this thing for its design attributes and comparing it pretty analytically. I'm not sitting there and letting it wash over me as a game in the purest sense that typical consumer may do the lens of is this fun did i have fun do i need to unpack what fun is did everybody at the table smile and laugh and stick a beer down them when i was trying to appraise this game in terms of quality as a compound measure 
meaningless as that is, I kept going back to the consideration of whether my normal friends would enjoy this as a game. Remove all the trainee stuff. Does this work as a card game? And it's a it's a lens I've lent on a lot over the previous three or four years. And I've become completely aware now that it's an utterly useless lens because my tastes diverge so much from this abstract normal person and i think that's part of the value of this trip was being in a room with people who are trained gamers for the most part trying to ask if your dog's going to enjoy it or if your toddler's going to enjoy it or will this work down the old person's home are all stupid questions it's a reflection on how I appraise something now, the methodology, and how that's changed over time. Maybe born with age and confidence in your own narrowing tastes, you stop caring about these fictional or idealised other people. These fictionalised friends that you think you have. The relationship status is certainly fictional. They exist, but if they were to be asked if they were my friend at my funeral, they'd say they're only there for the sandwiches. So, uh... (laughs) They're having sandwiches at the wake, by the way, guys, not the not the funeral. That would be weird. <laughs> if the vicar's walking around giving out Tesco sandwiches. Would you like prawns, sir? No? Okay. I just want to start a zero crud movement in my life. I don't need 50 short games. I could do with just six games. And that would be one for every day of the week. And time to just give it a rest on the remaining day. I had a night of card games recently, and Erie Railroad didn't have that immediate spark and tabletop laughter of inside job or cat in a box, but I'd sold those games almost immediately afterwards. They were just another layer of mulch. Erie Railroad isn't crap. At the moment, I would probably choose this game over Arboretum because it shares so many of those things I enjoy from other games. From the Cube Rails, my prime focus at the moment. Eerie Railroad offers a bizarre in-between place. A limbo between marketable and unmarketable. Playable, but unplayable. Serious, yet a cartoon. A game which can live or die on the first play. It's a guarantee of fun and a guarantee of misery. And there is substance. It won't give you luscious locks or magically eradicate your dandruff. But I'm happy with my hairstyle. It's in the tithe of the acceptable haircuts. Whereas your hairstyle, for instance, is definitely in the 90th percentile of hairstyles. <laughs> Let me ask a question then. Mm. You would choose this over Arboretum, and you declared that's because it lends itself to or aligns with your existing interests. Would you recommend it to someone over Arboretum? Only to a very specific person. Is that person me? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's possibly part of the reason that we come across as overly praising of the thing it's like almost a childlike amazement that you can pack our interests down into a card game if it's not your favorite card game ever then is it your favorite 
card game ever about quantum physics. Yes, this is better than Cat in the Box. Ever. Ever? Best ever. Do I have to observe all the timelines to their logical end of humanity? I can't make that commitment, Joe. We've already had a Room 101 where we've deleted games out of existence and offended the masses. Let's not do that again. I can't commit to this being the best game ever because that might disincentivize future designers from trying to make quantum card games. And who am I to disincentivize future designers from their creative endeavors? Who am I to quash that flame? Who am I? This thing is a wonderful distillation of Cubrail concepts, albeit in a strange form. A deck of cards and a train the size of a caterpillar. Or a cat, if you get the deluxe edition. The Kickstarter version being brought to you by thetrainrushindustries.com in 2024. <laughs> Once we've kicked out the kinks in the uh, licensing agreement with John Borer's ex-girlfriend's cat. Probably dead. I think John's cat story was a lot funnier than yours. Hmm. What have you got planned for when we get back? So I'm having my fibre scan, which is just a glorified ultrasound, next Monday. Mm. The following Thursday, I'm having the, um, the endoscopy, which is going to be fun. So by bracketing my birthday with medical procedures. Oh, and the day after my birthday, I'm going to see my cardiologist about... Um, about stuff so yeah something to look forward to then don't lower my coffee until everybody's got a sandwich <laughs> you should definitely request that in your last will and testament maybe put one giant oversized slice of bread into the bottom of the hole drop my box in and then drop another one on top maybe I'll call up Tom and Sarah and Lindsay maybe I'll, I'll call them up and say that you're going to die they need to shape up and play Erie Railroad or you'll die next week. I think we should check on the contents of that box before we board, Joe. Not again. I think we should... Not we again. Should make, let's have a look. Let me, I get snozzled in my T-shirt. No, the gonna... last time you rest your head on my shoulder. Well, we're being called now. Right, Should we get going? That's, that's done, yeah, that's done. Let's get going. All right. Bye-bye, Pittsburgh. Bye-bye, audience. She said, I know what it's like to be dead. I know what it is to be sad. You've been listening to The Train Rush. If you'd like to talk to the people behind the show, you can reach us on Twitter, at The Train Rush. You can engage with us via pictures using Instagram, the underscore train underscore rush you can contact us on facebook search for the train rush alternatively you can email us craig at the if you prefer your engagement as more of an open forum why not come to our board game geek guild number 3342 thank you for listening tell
the truth. Because that cat's out of the bag. Yeah, have I told you story of how I lost my hair? Yeah, and it was really good, so tell me again. I must have been 16, 17. <laughs> went on holiday to an all-inclusive thing on one of the Spanish islands with a couple of mates. And my memories of that holiday are getting shit-faced and going up onto the stage during the children's dance thing and doing the I Am The Music Man dance <laughs> on the stage in front of all the kids, displacing the entertainers with all the moves perfectly <laughs> so uh, we, we spent a couple of nights learning the I am the music man moves for the whole thing and we well, got well, around well, well, and you weren't being paid to do this like no, no, no. Red, red coats in butlins you... no, no, no 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 not at all and we wait, minute, wait, 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 wait. And everybody si- clapped 16. Joe and everybody clapped you're 16 right You've just finished your GCSEs. This Might be 17, 17. I think it was okay, the, 17. first year of college. Yeah, sure. So you go to Mallorca, well known for its like late night raves and party scene. And you get on the stage for the children's entertainment. And also, you've planned all the moves in advance. We watched it like two nights in a row. And Joe, the reason we weren't doing like the local club scene was we stupidly booked one of these places which was too far away from mm. anything. It's like, it's like it's, the family. We accidentally booked the family one. So we went clubbing <laughs> like three times when we were over there because each taxi costs about 70 quid. So we were limited to how much we could go out. <laughs> <laughs> and that is how you lost your hair. No, that's not how I lost my hair. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. I foolishly went and got my hair bleached into frosted tips, as was the style at the time, in the hotel hairdressers or salon or whatever you want to call it. And it was so wildly bleached, um, it all fell out over the course of the next year. <laughs> yeah, it was it was something absolutely obscene. <laughs> so from the age of 17, 18... My hair started falling out like a manky parrot, yeah. <laughs> When did he start to grow the beard? So that's got to be early 30s. Was it to compensate for the... I guess not, because that's quite a gap between the... No, it was. There was, there was, a, degree, there was a degree of that. Man, when I grew the beard, it was like, oh, wow, look at your beard. Oh, gosh, that's a big beard. Suddenly got attention for my grooming again, rather than just being walking around like a fucking potato. <laughs> you know, it's like, rather than just having this potato on top of your shoulders... <laughs> That occasionally, yeah. occasionally puts glasses on, like Mr. Potato Head. You know, I had, I had something I could style. It was amazing, Joe. Beards became quite fashionable at one point, didn't they? Still, I, I, they I, still I, are, I, dickhead. Are they? They are on this podcast, so you want to watch what you fucking say next. <laughs> the story prior to the story was better than the story, really. <laughs> Did you dye your hair for this event? No. I dyed my hair to try and get girls, mate. That didn't work either. Did you ever use that line about the top of your head being like a solar panel for a love machine or something? That's what bald people say, don't they? They did in the 90s. I'm not bald, it's a solar panel for a sex machine. And, mate, I was never one for lines. I could have done with the structure of lines. At least my cringe would have been a a recommended format, you know. (laughs) Well, recognised format. <laughs> My cringe is free form. <laughs> Please take your seats for takeoff. Thank you. I'm clicking stop. <laughs> Click.